Well, if you recall, well, let me start my timer here. We ended round two of our shorter catechism study back in November of last year and took a little break. I think we broke a little bit longer than I think we intended to originally, but nevertheless, our break has finally come to an end. And today we are beginning a new series. We're going to continue studying the doctrines of the Shorter Catechism, but rather than study it one question at a time, we're basically going to follow kind of an outline that you would find in a systematic theology. We're going to explore topics like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, and so on. And then each of us will teach for six weeks before moving on to another speaker and topic. And I'm I got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to this study, and I want to encourage you, especially those of you that are a little bit new to the faith or new to Reformed faith, this will be a good time to grab out a pen and paper and take some notes, because this will be a good intro and a review of the essential doctrines of our faith. Well, today we begin at looking at the doctrine of Scripture. Now, historically, when studying the doctrine of Scripture, there's usually a list of attributes that are explored that help us define what Scripture is and what it is not. And that list typically covers about seven attributes. And you may see slight variations of this list, uh, depending on who you read, or they may word it slightly different, uh, but seven is the usual number. Well, I'm going to be following uh, the outline we find in Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology, because I just really, really love that book. So... <laughs> And Raymond gives, he lists the seven attributes as follows. The attributes are necessity, inspiration, authority, self-authentication, sufficiency, perspicuity, which is uh, clarity, and finality. And of course, since there's seven, we'll cover two of these in one lesson at some point. Well, today we're going to explore the Bible's attribute of necessity. And I want to introduce this attribute to you by asking you this following question. Why are we beginning a study in theology with, by starting with the doctrine of Scripture? Should we begin with the doctrine of God? Now, those of you who have attended this church for a while, I think you already know the answer to this because you've heard it plenty of times. But for those that haven't, let's explore this for a minute. Because after all, this is a question that comes up quite a bit. It comes up in when you're uh, looking at evangelism or apologetics, defending the faith. This is a sort of a controversial point. Where do we begin? Do we begin with Scripture or do we begin with the doctrine of God? Many people argue that since unbelievers do not embrace the Bible, we should first talk to them about the existence of God and even attempt to prove his existence apart from any appeal to the Bible. They may say, well, why quote Bible verses to people who don't even embrace the Bible? They don't even believe it. So let's first prove God's existence. And when we get the unbeliever to accept that there is a God, then we can start bringing in Bible verses. Well, that seems reasonable, right? And that is the strategy of a lot of Christians, perhaps even most Christians. But notice it's not the strategy here of the Westminster Divines reflecting historic Reformed theology. And if you look at the catechism, both catechisms and the confession, they all start the same way. Notice the first chapter in the confession is entitled, Of the Holy Scripture, followed by chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity. 
in both the larger and shorter catechisms. The first question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? The answer being that his chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The question of what is God is asked, but only after the divines first establish the doctrine of Scripture. So why are they doing this? And why are we doing that here? Why are we starting our new series with a doctrine of Scripture instead of the doctrine of God? Well, I want to give you a couple of reasons for this, which will all tie into this attribute of necessity. But first, I want you to think about that word necessity for a second. What does that word mean? <clears throat> well, the old 1928 Webster's Dictionary, which every homeschool family has, I think, <laughs> defines it as that which must be and cannot be otherwise or the cause of that which cannot be otherwise. Another dictionary defines it as a condition requisite for the attainment of any purpose. So think about it. If our purpose in all of this is to know, to glorify, and to enjoy God, and we desire for others to know, to glorify, and enjoy God, what is it that is absolutely required that we possess and embrace in order to make that happen? And our answer is we must have a revelation from God. That is where we start. Now, let me flesh this out some more and give you the reasons why. Number one, let's just think about this rationally, linguistically. Suppose we were to put the Bible aside for a second, and instead of beginning with a doctrine of Scripture, we began with trying to prove the existence of God, quote-unquote. Well, the first an obvious question any rational person is going to ask is, what do you mean by the term God? I mean, before you attempt to prove to me that there's something out there that exists called God, I got to know what you're talking about, right? And right off the bat, we run into a, a problem, into trouble. The English word God can be used to refer to a number of various things that are not identical to one another. Some people use the word God to refer to a supreme being, but then they have different ideas about who or what that supreme being is. The God of Christianity, for example, is not the God of Islam or the God of the Mormons. Some use the word God as a reference to superhumans who have special powers, like those of ancient Greek religion. You even see that word thrown around a little bit in the comic book world. Even in the Greek and Hebrew languages of the scripture, which you would think, well, let's go there, that'll solve it, right? No, not necessarily. The word translated as God can have various references. In Hebrew, for example, a word that is often translated as God is Elohim. This is the word that's used in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and earth. But did you also know that this same Hebrew word is used of men? In fact, Webster points this out in his dictionary. The third definition he gives of God is, quote, a prince, a ruler, a magistrate, or judge, or an angel. And then he cites Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. 28, that says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. We see the same thing in the Greek text. In Greek, we have the word theos. You see this in John chapter 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was theos, or was with theos, and the word was theos. He was in the beginning with theos. But later on in John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says to the Jews who were confronting him, Is it not written in your law, I said, that you are gods? 
There, the Greek is theos, plural. And there, Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, where Elohim is used in the Hebrew. Jesus goes on to say, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Commenting on this passage, Calvin notes, quote, They receive the name of gods because they are God's ministers for governing the world. For the same reason, Scripture calls the angels gods because they, by them the glory of God beams forth on the world. And then Calvin also goes on later to state, he says, let us know that magistrates are called gods because God has given them authority. So we see that in English, Hebrew, and Greek, we have words that are used to refer to the one true God that's also used of those who are not the one true God, which brings us back to our dilemma. When you say that you're going to prove the existence of God, quote unquote, with your Bible shoved off to the side, my question to you is always going to be, what God are you talking about? <coughs> and if you begin to answer that question by describing to me the God who was described in Scripture, well, now you're violating the very task you set out to do from the beginning, which to, which to prove the existence of some God with your Bible off to the side. But then if you say, well, it doesn't really matter specifically how we define God, well, then all you have done now is argue for idolatry in violating the first commandment in the process. Notice the wording of the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That Hebrew word is translated as, you guessed it, Elohim. The same word used by God of himself in the verse just previous to this one, where he says, I am the Lord, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so if we are to obey this first commandment, which is binding upon all people at all times, we absolutely must distinguish one Elohim from other Elohim. But how in the world are you going to do that when you set out to prove the existence of some vague, undefined God apart from the revelation that God himself has given to us for the very purpose of distinguishing himself from others? Beloved, you can't. It's impossible. So just from a rational linguistic perspective, we see an insurmountable problem with this approach. However, with our approach, we don't run into this problem. If we start with the doctrine of Scripture first, more specifically, we have as our starting point the axiom that the Bible is the Word of God written. Notice two things about this axiom. First, notice that God isn't left out. By starting with the doctrine of Scripture, we are certainly not excluding God from our beginning. The term God is there. It's not like we're saying, hey, let's start with some text that has nothing to do with God and then reason to God. If we did that, we would be no better off than the person who wants to start merely with God apart from Scripture. But secondly, notice that our axiom does not leave it to our imagination to define God however we see fit. And again, in the process, violate the first commandment. Our axiom locates the only true reliable source for our information about God, and that is the Bible. Now, someone may object, yeah, but Jason, you still have that problem of quoting verses to people who don't accept these verses as being true. 
Well, we'll get more into that when we look at the attribute of authority. But let me just say here briefly, the beloved, understand this. This issue of trying to change people's hearts so that they embrace the truth of God's word isn't your job. It's way beyond your pay grade. You don't have the power to do that. And see, this is where your apologetics and your evangelism has to be in tune with your theology. Don't call yourself reformed and then turn around and try to tell me that you can argue people into the kingdom of God. Well, secondly, let me give you a reason for why we start with the doctrine of Scripture first, a reason that God himself gives to us. And for this, I want us to just briefly look at, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Now, I understand that by saying that God has given us this text, we're assuming inspiration here. And you'll just have to go with that assumption for now until we look at the attribute of inspiration, which will be in our next lesson. But let's look at some things that Paul says here in this text. And it's one of my favorites because it's just so crystal clear what Paul's doing and arguing here. Notice some things that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. I want you to notice the pattern here. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? These are all rhetorical questions. The debaters, the, 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 uh, the scribe and the disputer of this age and the wise are nowhere to be found. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. That covers everybody, doesn't it? Jew and Gentile. Chapter 2, verse 6, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. And in verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. And then finally in verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What in the world is going on here? Do you see the pattern here? We treat God in our natural state, in his word, as foolishness. We are, and we're the fools in turn. We don't know God, and we don't come to know God through our wisdom. We don't receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can we know them. And if that weren't enough, Paul tells us that we can't possibly know the things of God because we are not mind readers. Think about that one for a second. You know, as I look over the audience here, Wesley, I have no idea what's going on in Wesley's mind right now. I don't know if I want to. No, I'm just kidding. But I can't read Wesley's mind. I have no idea. It's impossible. I can't do it. I can't read his mind. Or if it, What in the world makes me think then that if I can't read Wesley's mind, that I should be able to read God's mind? 
I can't read God's mind any more than I can read Wesley's mind, nor am I that Spirit of God that Paul mentions in verse 11, who he says alone knows the mind of God. And yet, despite all of that, now look at verse 16. Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now wait a second. How did we get there, Paul? How did we go from being ignorant fools, not knowing God, not knowing his mind, and being totally incapable of doing so, to now we have the mind of Christ. Now we do know these things. Well, let's go back to my example with Wesley. I can't read his mind. I don't know what he's thinking right now. But there would be one way for me to know what's on his mind. And, and how would that happen? It's pretty simple. Just, Wesley can just decide to talk to me, communicate with me, tell me what's on his mind. Well, beloved, that is exactly what Paul says that God did for us. So that we go from being fools and ignorant and not knowing his mind to now having the mind of Christ. Notice verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual Beloved, God has spoken. He's communicated to us. He has revealed his mind to us, at least partially. And as we see clearly here in this text, it was of absolute necessity that God do this in order that we might come to know God and the things of God. That which was hidden, verse 7, has been revealed. That which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has ever entered into the heart of man, verse 9, is now seen, is now heard, and is in our hearts. Because, verse 10, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Remember what we said about the word necessity. That which must be and cannot be otherwise, or the cause of that which cannot be otherwise or a condition requisite for the attainment of any purpose. Beloved, if we are to know God and to know him rightly, we cannot do so apart from his word. This is why we start with a doctrine of scripture. And this is why scripture is, is of absolute necessity. I'm going to close and end it with this quote from our confession, chapter 1, paragraph 1, which states, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. 
Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Well, amen. Raymond commenting on here says, Notice it's important that we clearly see the confession grounds its doctrine of the necessity of Scripture in two antecedent conditions that obtained at the present time. Namely, one, the insufficiency of general revelation, and two, the sensation of special revelation. If general revelation is insufficient to provide that knowledge of God and of his will that is essential to salvation, and if special revelation has ceased, then one must go to Scripture if he would learn those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation. Moreover, it must be noted that to the degree that one believes that God still speaks directly to men and women today through prophets or through these so-called tongue speakers, just to that same degree he is saying that he does not absolutely need the Bible for a word from God. And accordingly, he has abandoned the great Reformation principle of sola scriptura in the quote. Now, obviously, there's more we can get into here uh, with general revelation versus special revelation, but I'll kind of tie that in with our next lesson. From here, we'll go on to uh, the inspiration of Scripture. But, beloved, I just wanted to hammer home that point to you today, the absolute necessity of the Bible and why we start from there. We have to define our terms, number one, and as we clearly see, as Paul has taught us here in 1 Corinthians, there's no way possible to come to know who God is and all that he is rightly and truly understood apart from God telling us and revealing his own mind to us. 